I'd like to thank Essen and Kyle and the elders for the opportunity to speak this morning. <clears throat> I'd also like to thank, I don't know who it is that provides the coffee, but thank you. <laughs> um, there are so many people, uh, including the worship team, which is absolutely terrific. I believe that they bring us into God's presence week after week, um, uh, and uh, it, it really does show. It helps me. If you get a moment, uh, while you're thinking about it, pray for me. I'm losing my voice, <clears throat> which is part of uh, uh, the thing I've been going through for about a year or so. Um, uh, I would love to be able to finish this message this morning. Um, <clears throat> turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Romans 4, verse 5. Romans 4, verse 5. And while you're turning, you, you no doubt have heard about the mother who went to her son's room on Sunday morning and realized he was still in bed. And she asked him, uh, are you going to church? And he said, no. And she said, why not? He said, I'll give you two reasons. One, I, they don't like me. And two, I don't like them. And she said, oh, well, I'll give you two reasons why you should go. First, you're 53 years old. And secondly, you're the pastor. <laughs> We'll read the text in just a minute. Some years ago, when I was uh, in seminary, we conducted a survey on the streets of a large metropolitan area. We asked people two very simple questions. Do you believe there is a heaven? And secondly, if so, who goes there? We talked to rich people, poor people, Bankers, busboys, educated, not so educated, men and women, older and younger, white, brown, yellow, and black. Most of them did believe that there is something called heaven or something like that. It was when we got to the second question, who goes there, that we found there was a lot of trouble. <clears throat> some people offered some religious answers semi-religious answers. Some people talked about good works and, and morality. Some people just shrugged, walked away. One lady said, it's none of your business. <laughs> Surprisingly, only two people could actually give a clear-cut answer as to who goes to heaven. Well, this morning I have the tremendous privilege of sharing with you what the Bible says about who goes to heaven. I hope it is a proper finishing touch on the Christmas series we have done about Christ. Will you stand with me? I am only going to read verse 5, and, I am, and I'm reading from the New American Standard. 
But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Our Father, we beseech you, let the words of my mouth and, my, and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. When you look at this text, you might find it a little difficult to understand when you first read it. But I assure you, once you understand it, you may find it difficult to believe. Because here God tells us who goes to heaven, who is right with God. There are actually three things in this verse that give you the characteristics of those whom God saved. Three things about those who go to heaven. Three things that tell you who is justified before God. Before we look at those three things, there's a word that has to be defined that's actually in the text. It's the word justify. Do you see it? Verse 5, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. We get our word justification from this word. We need to give it a definition so that you'll understand. This is, justification is not forgiveness. Justification results in forgiveness, but they are not the same. Justification, and here's sort of a formal definition for you. Justification is an act of God, an instantaneous moment, to, uh, uh, on the moment, not a process, the moment you believe, where God makes a double transfer. He takes your sin and puts it on Christ, and that is how he could be judged in your place. But he also takes his righteousness and puts it on you. And God treats you the way he would treat his son. Justification is not forgiveness. Justification results in it. Let me give you an example out of history. How many of y'all uh, know who Samuel Mudd was in history? All right. We got more than we did this morning. That's pretty good. Samuel Mudd was a doctor in Maryland. One night, oh, by the way, this is in 1865, the last year of the Civil War. He, uh, at night, he heard a knock on his door. There was a man there <clears throat> whose leg was broken. And Dr. Samuel Mudd set that leg for him, and, uh, and the man went off that evening. <clears throat> it turns out that that man was... John Wilkes Booth. He had just finished assassinating the president, President Lincoln. <clears throat> the authorities recognized there was a conspiracy and, and really brought in all the conspirators, but they figured that Samuel Mudd was one of them. He declared, I, I am not. I have no idea of what's, what is going on here. I am innocent. But they arrested him, they tried him, and even though they put to death a number of the conspirators, they did not 
execute Samuel Mai. The reason why is because there was an uh, uncertainty. There really was no evidence apart from the fact that he helped a man medically. But they took him and put him in jail. That is Fort Jefferson, which is way south uh, off of the Florida Keys. He was there for about a year and a half, and finally the president, deciding that they did not really have evidence to put him in prison, they gave him forgiveness, and they let him go. He spent the rest of his life arguing, I do not want forgiveness. He wanted to be justified. And it was in 1970s when President Jimmy Carter issued a statement saying that Samuel Mudd did no wrong in the, uh, and was not part of the conspiracy to kill President Lincoln. He merely fulfilled his, uh, his Hippocratic oath and sought to, uh, as a doctor. Did you see the difference? <clears throat> There's a major problem. How can God justify us? How can God justify you? I mean, we are sinners. Everyone here is a sinner. All have sinned, the scripture says. All, we all stumble in many ways, says James 3. If we say we have not sinned, we lie, and the truth is not in us, 1 John 1. Let me show you what I mean. Here's the way people think. Not necessarily just the way I'm demonstrating it, but this is the way we reason. If you could imagine a large scale, a very large scale, much longer than this room, and you could say at the one end of the scale there is perfect righteousness, holiness, like the holiness of God. And then the other end of the scale would be perfect sin. There you would place Jesus, right, at the, right there. He is perfect. He is without sin. Over there, you would place Satan. And you would say, okay, somewhere along the scale, I fit. And so does everybody else. And I judge myself according to where I am on the scale. Hopefully, I am good enough. And God's judgment ends on the others on my left side, for that area. So here's people we put along there. You know, there's some that are infamous. There is Adolf Hitler, Stalin, Lenin, the Boston Strangler, and a few politicians. <laughs> <laughs> and over here, there's Kyle <laughs> and his wife. Then there's Essen. <laughs> but I, I am somewhere along that line, and I'm hoping, I am hoping that God's judgment falls over here. Except for, do you know that somebody over here is hoping it lies here? In fact, did you know that Hitler actually did think that he was a Christian? And he was hoping that over that God's judgment would be here. Now, here's what the scripture actually says. Because in a sense, this is a, cor a correct description of the way God sees things. But God says this. 
Yes, there is a standard. He who breaks the, whole, breaks the law at one point breaks it all. Cursed is every man who does not abide by all things written in the law. What God is saying, yes, there is a standard. It starts here with Jesus, and it ends here with Jesus, and everybody else is damned. You're there. I'm there. Naturally, we're all there. We're so... We're so unaccustomed to looking at ourselves in the relationship with God, but if you did, you would realize, I not only deserve hell, I deserve a hundred hells. There are things that we forget, all of them. There are things that we minimize in ourselves. It's horrible stuff. That's why God has given us the law, because it's a mirror. And mirrors don't make you beautiful. Mirrors show you what's really there. I got up this morning and I went, ah! I'm getting old. I can't stop it. The mirror does not make you beautiful. The law tells you who you are. And it's not some little uh, few statements. The depths of the law should undo you. Let me show you what I mean. What do you call somebody who's killed another man unlawfully? What do you call him? Murderer. Right, a murderer. Okay. Have you lied? You're a liar. Have you lusted? You are an adulterer. An adulteress. That's what Jesus says about the law. It takes you and it's supposed to undo you. It's not there to make you holy. It's to make you run to where holiness can be found. And that is only in Jesus. So how could God justify us? Do you know that the scripture says, scripture says in Proverbs 24, makes an amazing statement. It says this. To show partiality in judgment is not good. Proverbs 24, 23. He who says to the wicked, you are righteous, that would be to justify them. He who says to the wicked, you are righteous, people will curse him. Nations will abhor him. Is God subject to that? God has set up a standard that says an unjust judge is one who justifies the unjust. Which means, that's the, that's the royal question. How can, a, how can a just God take the unjust, declare them just, and remain just himself? How can a righteous God take the unrighteous, declare them righteous, and remain righteous himself? Here's how he does this. Hey, brother, can I borrow you? Can will you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're a good man. Would you would you step over here? There's, 
What's that? <laughs> no? Okay. This is, he represents Jesus. I represent me, and I represent you. I represent everyone in humanity. Okay. Look, when you live, you have a life. You have a record of your life. God makes it clear in Revelation, Revelation 20. Yeah, we have a book, a book that says, here's everything righteous. Also, here's your life. Oh, man. The record of my life is, there's just too much. It's, it's, it's awful. Before I came to the Lord, but it's also true after I came to the Lord. In fact, those are the sins that sort of hurt me the most. I can look down and go, oh, oh. But Jesus also came to earth, didn't he? He didn't come on a Thursday and die the next day on a Friday, did he? Nah. He came and lived a 32, 30 year, 33 years of life. He obeyed God. And the father breaks in and looks at him and, and, and speaks. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. This is my son in whom I delight. Oh, how I love my son in, in thought, word, and deed. The motives, everything he did is holiness without compromise. It's wonderful. So here I am, the unjust, and here is Jesus. Just hold it out. Just hold it ready. Here's Jesus. So what happens in salvation? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he, he who knew no sin became sin. What does that mean? What God did is he did in justification, and, and what it means is that he imputed my sin to Jesus. He did not constitute Jesus in his person. Did Jesus become a sinner? No. But he laid it on him. He imputed it to him. Just like you do money when you impute it into the bank. If your parents did that, remember when you wire them when you were in college? Dear Dad, <clears throat> no fun, no mun, your son. And he didn't say, too bad, so sad, you're dead. He put money in your account. You didn't earn it. It was his. But he put it on you. What he does with us is that he takes and he puts my sin on him. In, and then he judges him as if he were me. That's what the cross is about. Do you believe this? Two of you do? We've got a lot of work to do. <laughs> do you believe this? Amen. Okay. But that's only half of it. The life that Jesus lived. He imputes to me. Going, I'm trying to remember the verse. I just, I just said it. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God through Him. That's Second Peter five. How about Philippians three? Not have, that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own 
derived from the law, but the righteousness of Christ. Did he make me holy the moment I believed? Not the way you're thinking about it, but he imputed his righteousness to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Do you believe this? Do you? Listen, this has, some, this has everything to do with raising your children, showing them what's right and wrong. Instead of, and yet, at the same time, when you're showing them Sinai, you have to also show them Mount Calvary. You want them to understand good and, 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 and evil, but you also have to be able to show them where grace is found. Let me, let me show you one more. I'm going to do it. Uh, I'm going to hope we can get it done. All right, uh, I, you know, somebody who was in the first service, very kind, actually was, grew up a shepherd. Did you know that? You have a shepherd in your church? She, okay. When these chairs are representing sheep, I want you to imagine a mother and her lamb. And another mother and her lamb. This is the way shepherds, or the issue that, that shepherds have a mother, a mother sheep might bear, um, might give birth, but in giving birth to a lamb, she dies. Did you know it used to be that when a mother died, her lamb had ended up dying as well? And the reason why her lamb would die is because there's no way to feed her. If you took that lamb to another mother, she would smell it, and she'd realize, this is not my lamb. And what she'd do is kick it away. You're not mine. In that equation of, of flock, you also might have a mother who gives birth to a lamb, but that lamb dies. Now, here's what shepherds used to do. They have better methods now, but this is what they used to do. A wise shepherd Hi, welcome to Tabernacle. <laughs> to those of you back, do you know what I've been saying? Do you? Okay. They, they would tie off, thank you, tie on the, the wool of the orphan lamb and then bring it to the mother who was bereaved of her lamb. She would smell the wool. 
and she would feed her lamb. The lamb would live. What God has done with his son is that he's taken the righteousness of Christ and he has laid it on you. When you believe, And it's as if God, God's not fooling himself, but it really is as if God goes, my son, oh, how I love my son. This is the righteousness of my son. I love you because I love my son. You are righteous in my eyes because you have the righteousness of Christ. That's what justification is. Do you understand now? Only 10 of you? Look, you know, I'll be honest with you. When I teach this in India to pastors, or to pastors in, in Africa, I mean, they're wild with enthusiasm. Not that I'm trying to show you how to respond, but they're just, yes! And they immediately begin to understand how, the effects of how this is my relationship with God, how I, it has changed. It's not based on my conduct, good or bad. It's founded on the righteousness and the blood of Jesus. It's everything. It changes your relationship with your spouse. You can stop legalizing them. They don't measure up. You have to look at them the way, you, the, way the Father looks at you and the way the Father looks at them. It's the basis of fellowship because this takes and erases every other distinction. Oh, they're there. They're still male and female, rich and poor. But we all have one, one standard that means everything. Nothing could replace it. Nothing could exceed it. Oh, the implications of this are, are we, I could talk all day, which is usually what I do. <laughs> so now, real quickly, in the text, you understand one word. Look at the, the verse, and there's three things. Who does God justify? But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Do you realize what he just said? How many of you want to go to heaven? Do you want to be right with God? Do you want to know for certain you are right with God? Only... A perfect righteousness could make you there and give you the surety that you'll never doubt. I really am his. But the first thing he's saying is this. They're ungodly. He doesn't say he justifies Presbyterians, Baptists, Charismatic, Methodist, Catholic, moral people. The only people whom God justifies, are ungodly. You see, Christianity is a, is of the Bible is a sinner's religion. Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am chief, Paul says in 1 Timothy 1. 
and you will call him Jesus because he will save his people <clears throat> from their sin. I've said enough about that second thing. Not only do they know they're <clears throat> sinners, but look again at verse 5. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him. <clears throat> that is so opposite of the way we think. Do you realize just about everything about us in our world is based on merit? If you work hard, you hope to get a race. If you run first, run a race and come in first, you get a prize. If you're in the military and you do well, they give you a medal. In school, if you get the best, if you get good grades, you get, I mean, if you work hard, you get good grades. If you get the best grades, it's valedictorian, you get to stand in front of your friends and speak while they sit in their chairs and sleep. <laughs> That's the way we think, but it's not the way God thinks. And there's two reasons. One of them we've already said, we are sinners, and God says, Look, if you're going to try to make it on the basis of your deeds, then I will judge you by your works. And we already seen, we're already condemned. It can't be on the basis of what you do. The second one is, if God saved you on the basis of what you did, then it wouldn't be grace. It would be works. Come on now for a second. You're gonna, we're going to pretend you're my wife. She, my wife is hiding in the back so she doesn't get caught up in the illustration. By the way, I, uh, back before the world's crust hardened, I asked my wife to marry me. I was, we were in Dallas. Um, Dallas, by the way, if you go, if you, there is a, uh, every time the Dallas Cowboys are on, or, or something big is going on in Dallas, they show the skyline. And if you look at the skyline, you see this long, long pole uh, and then this big ball on top of it. Now, actually, that's called Reunion Tower. And it is actually really large. There's a restaurant in there. And that's where I asked my wife to marry me. So I, I, I get reminded of it all the time. By the way, it goes around, it, uh, not fast, but... It, it just literally goes around. And if you have to go to the restroom, you really better keep track of where your table was because when you get back out, you're going, where on earth am I? Anyway, this is what I did. You have, you have, okay. Um, thank you. For, okay. I asked my wife, I told her, um, I love you. No, I said, I care for you. Do you know that? Yes. I love you. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> will you marry me? Um, and she said, you're kidding. <laughs> she said, yes. And then when I gave her the ring, isn't that beautiful? It really, it was better than I'm explaining it. Anyway, she said, yes. 
Well, what would you do? What would you think if she turned around and did this? <laughs> you know, what would you say? Come on, think. Think for a minute. What would you think if, if she's saying, I said, what is this? And she said, oh, it's, it, it's for the ring. It's for your love. What would you think? You can't buy love. The last chapter of Song, Song of Solomon says you would hate it if you could buy love. And on top of how, the, how much, I mean, how much is it worth? It would cheapen it. But it certainly wouldn't be about grace. Thank you. Thank you so much. It wouldn't be grace. It would be something else. It's something tarnished. Grace, love, those are things that are supposed to be unearned. That's why God says, no, you don't approach the, God, the throne of God with your hands full of yourself. All you do would be to incur a greater wrath. You think you can buy my, my grace on the basis of something you would do? Get this wretch out of here. No, you come to God with empty hands. So, one, ungodly. Two, to those who do not work, do not work. Three, but to the one who does not work but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. They believe. Without, without exception, they believe. Now, we know what the object of faith is. We've already been saying it this morning, and it's all over. That's what the Scripture is all about. The truth is, we see the shadow of Christ the very moment that Adam and Eve fell. But what is the nature of saving faith? How do I know I have it? How do I know I have it? If you haven't caught anything I've said, you need to hear this. Belief can be so marginalized in our thinking today that it doesn't mean anything at all. But to believe in the Bible meant to entrust yourself to entrust yourself. Have you entrusted yourself to Jesus Christ? Last example, and we're done. Ever been to Niagara Falls? Who's been to Niagara Falls? It's, a, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. It's terrifying. If you get on the Canadian side and you go up to the edge, I mean, before you get there, about a quarter of a mile before you arrive, the ground starts shaking. And it increases the closer you get. It's, it's amazing. Do you know people have actually tried to go over the falls? There's history on the falls. You can pick it up. You can even Google it. it and in fact, it, you know, the one fall, I mean, put together the American fall and the and, um, Niagara Fall proper, which is Horseshoe Fall, that's about over a mile. But Horseshoe Fall itself is is about half a mile long. 
the top to the bottom is uh, over 170 feet. That's close to 60 yards. That's a long drop. Over 4 million tons of water goes over the falls every second. It's incredible. Nobody can really survive it, but people have tried to do different things. They've tried to swim from one side to the other, you know, on the top there, and they died. There are people who tried to boat it. They died. For a long time, people tried to go over it in a barrel, and they died. But did you know, just before the war, that is the Civil War, there was a man by the name of Blondin. And Blondin said, I will go over the falls on a tightrope. So he set up his tightrope. Uh, I need a bell. Um, I'd like to buy a bell. Yes, never mind. It, it, he, actually, he covered the falls, Niagara Falls, I mean, a, a horseshoe. Thousands of people came out to see this. He said, watch this. Blondin, by the way, is his stage name. <clears throat> he went from one end to the other with the balancing bar, and he made it look easy, like a stroll. Went back, forth. Everybody, whoa, wow, this is great, woo-hoo! Then he said, watch this. He put the ball, the uh, balancing bar away, and he did it just free. It's going to be just like a bird. He said, now do you believe I can cross the falls? Yes! He said, watch this. He took a chair out and put the chair right in the middle. And he flipped it around, got himself in it, lifted up his legs and balanced himself on a chair. He brought it back, did a wheelbarrow. Then he went out and actually lied down. Do you realize how quickly off of Lake Erie, which is the last of the four lakes of the Great Lakes that all feed this one, and then it goes on in Ontario, Lake Ontario, you realize that the wind come up like that. And then, it, and then he goes, okay, now, does everybody believe I can cross the falls? Yes! I'd like to volunteer, please. <laughs> Nobody was willing to do it. You believe I can go across? Yeah. Do you believe I can take a person across? Yeah. Any volunteers? Finally, he got one man. And this is what he said. Don't help me. Just hold on. I'll do the work. And he took him to Goat Island and back. Don't you realize we're on island earth. Judgment is coming. You have to get off, because you can't swim it. You can't boat it. You can't go over it in an old wheelbarrow. There's no way you or I could ever get across to heaven 
to God's presence. But there is one man who came from heaven to earth and who has gone back. You know he can do it. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Do you believe he came? Yes. But you're not saved until you entrust yourself to him. You offer God nothing. If God said, why should I let you into my heaven? God would say, what would you say? Oh, I believe in Jesus. And then if God just sat there. And? What would you say? You better not say anything. You better say, Lord, I'm trusting in Jesus, and if I'm not saved through him, there isn't anything else. I not only repented of my sin, I had to repent of my own self-righteousness. And I turned to him alone. And when you do that, you are saved forever. It's over. Your guilty conscience is not greater than the promises of God. Your failures as a Christian, stop saying to yourself and listening to the lie. Am I really a Christian? The very fact that you're so bothered is proof that you are. Trust in Christ, and you will be saved. Father, here is a message so good so simple and yet so profound that the greatest scholars cannot fathom its its depth. Oh, let every man, woman, and child here be found right with you. Let none of us be lost. Let none of us be fooled by ourselves. Let us truly understand and entrust ourselves to you in a way that is satisfying to you. Lord, we need your spirit now to truly believe. Appoint us to that end. Make us thine own. Make us your children. And we thank you that many here have found you through different messages of the gospel, different friends who knew the gospel. Make us friends to some others and be able to tell them to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith will be reckoned as righteousness.